Okay, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Those should be short. You guys can have a seat. So as we begin the final week covering Exodus, this is, this is, this is, this is part 20 of our study in Exodus, part 20. Um, and then we're going to take a break for the rest of August. And then we will resume Exodus in the fall and finish it off over the course of the fall. So as we jump back into Exodus for one more week in the summertime... We are covering the Ten Commandments one more time. Remember these tablets? We're covering them one more time. We've been three weeks in to the Ten Commandments. We're, we're looking at it from three different angles. The first week, we kind of laid them out there, and we looked at them from the bird's eye view of what are the Ten Commandments about? Is this, is this how we earn God's favor? Is this how we earn salvation? And we said, no, 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 that's not the case. We are set free to live free. God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt and then said, now that I've rescued you, now that I've proven my love for you, here's how I want you to live in such a way that you're going to have peace and joy and fulfillment. So that was the first week. But because of Jesus, we still are being set free to live free. We don't earn our way. We don't do good deeds. We don't obey the commandments in order for Jesus to say, okay, now you can be in my family. It's the opposite. That's religion. And Jesus says, no, that doesn't work. You, you can't earn your way in. Jesus came, rescues us, forgives us of our sins, puts his spirit in us, and then says, now that I've freed you, I want you to live differently so that the rest of the world goes, wow, something about those people. Something about those people. That was two weeks ago. Last week, we took the first commandment, the first uh, tablet, if you will, and the first commandment said, you shall have no other gods before me. And we focused on that one, and we looked at how that commandment affects all the others. When we elevate created things too high and put them above God, and we look to them for our hope, our fulfillment, our sense of worth and identity, things go badly, and it leads to all other kinds of ills and evils. So that was last week. Today, we're taking the second tablet, and we're looking at the very last commandment about not coveting others' stuff, belongings, relationships. Now, I don't know if coveting applies to this church or not. Let me just ask a few questions to see Engage. Have you ever gone to somebody's house for a party, and when you were driving there, you were perfectly content with where you lived? And then you get to their house, and you're looking around, and you're going, wow, gosh, how, how did they afford that? And what, wow, wow, they have a hot tub right in the middle of their kitchen? Like, what in the world? <laughs> and you get to the point where you drive home, and you pull into your driver, and you're like, I don't even want to go inside my house. What a dump. Everything's broken. Nothing works right. It just breeds this discontent. Anybody? Happen? Anybody? Single people. You ever have a friend get engaged? They show you the ring. You're so excited for them, sort of, on the outside. But on the inside, you're like, what the heck? They're younger than me. This is just a reminder that another year has gone by and I'm still single. And so you say the right things on the outside, but then you go home and sulk on the inside. Not ever having married people. You ever go through a difficult season in marriage and you find yourself saying, mm, man, to be single again, to be single again. Single people don't know how good they have it. Or maybe even looking at somebody else's marriage and going, I want their marriage. Why do I have to be in this marriage? I want that marriage. Or 
maybe you just look at other people's gifts, talents, skills, abilities, and you're like, I wish I was like them. I wish I could play the guitar like Miguel can play the guitar. I wish I could sing like Mandy can sing. I wish I could be more extroverted. I'm so shy. Extroverts seem to have more fun. They seem to connect better with people. I'm so awkward around people. That ever happened? Anything? Striking any nerves? Does this church struggle at all with covetousness? <laughs> A little bit? So we're going to talk today about the trap of covetousness. The trap, because it is indeed a trap. God tells us not to covet, not just because it's wrong, not just because it's an indicator that we are ungrateful for the lot that he has given us in life, but also because it robs us of joy and peace and fulfillment. It breeds discontentment. It, it, it breeds resentment between relationships, bitterness, jealousy. It prevents us from being able to love God and love others as God has called us to in a way that leads to our flourishing, which we'll talk more about. So my hope today is that um, by God's power, <laughs> through his spirit, that we would become a little bit more free from the trap of covetousness. That's my hope. That's what I'm going to be praying for. That's what I'll pray for right now, in fact. So God, do that work. Do something in our hearts. We all fall into this trap. It's big things, little things, things that we see in others and their relationships and their lives. Free us, Lord. Free us because you love us. Do a work in our hearts today. Let this be a day when you do something big in our hearts by the power of your Spirit. It's in Christ's name I pray because of what Jesus has done on the cross that made it possible to pray such prayers. Amen. Amen. All right, so here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to make five points about covetousness. We'll just jump right into it. Five points about covetousness. You can take notes if you want to. So, number one, coveting something is more than desiring it. Coveting something is more than desiring. It's not wrong to desire something. It's not wrong to want something. Uh, we're not called to be uh, you know, stoics and pretend like we don't have these desires. Uh, coveting something is more than desiring it. When God said, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, anything that's your neighbor's, he wasn't saying you can't be inspired by or admire what your neighbor has. He wasn't saying that you can't walk into your uh, friend's house with that hot tub in the kitchen and go, wow, amazing that you have a hot tub in your kitchen. Maybe one day I can have a hot tub in my kitchen. That's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong as a single person to look at a married couple and say, I would love to one day have a, have a marriage like you, like you have. That's inspiring. Nothing wrong with that. To covet something, technically speaking, is to yearn to possess it or to have it. The Hebrew word that is translated covet is also translated lust. To lust after something. It's, it's desire out of control. It's desire that's become like a runaway train. Desire on steroids. Desire that is disordered. It's when you put your hope in something so much that you, you've got to have that for your sense of happiness and peace that other people suddenly become obstacles to you having that happiness. You become jealous of what they have. 
You can't rejoice with those who are rejoicing because you don't have it and therefore life is not fair. That's coveting and it's usually awakened through other people. Like my kids recently, we were at a, a, a party and my kids had a great time. It was time to go. If we had just left, gotten in the car, our kids would have said, you know, that was great. Like, you know, they maybe would have told us how much fun they had. And they did this and they did this. Instead, because it was time to go, they looked and saw other kids who were still at the party playing. And they were about to start a new activity. And all of a sudden, they're like, wait a second. They get to stay. Why do they get to stay later? Why are they getting to do this? And it's like, oh, because your parents are worse than their parents. What are we going to tell you? We're leaving. But they were fixated on what these other kids were doing. And all of a sudden, it was robbing them of the ability to be thankful for the good time that they had. At the end of the night, they all get a, they get a treat. They get like, you know, junk food, uh, junk food dessert kind of thing. And so if we give them ice cream, let's say, they're excited for ice cream. Until we give the cup of ice cream, all, all of a sudden they're looking in their sister's cup. Hey, she got more than me. This happens all the time. She got more ice cream. So all of a sudden they're coveting not just what their sister has, but the specific amount of ice cream. Right? And we think, oh, that's silly. Because of kids. Oh, my gosh. Don't we do this? We are all rich by the world standards. Like, compared to the rest of the world, we are rich. Y'all know this, right? True? And yet, we look at a coworker who gets that promotion and makes maybe 10 grand more than us all of a sudden, and because they were at the company for less time, all of a sudden, we're thinking, life's not fair. What the heck? I'm being, I'm being taken advantage of. They're, they're treating me like a slave. We're still rich. Nothing's changed. Also, uh, uh, for us, all of a sudden, something's changed for somebody else, and life's not fair for us. That's coveting. That's coveting. It's awakened through other people. And listen, I see this with pastors. I've, I've dealt with it as, as a pastor. You know, uh, this is a hypothetical situation, but it's not too far from what goes on in a pastor's heart sometimes, where a pastor prays, you know, I want this to be a church where you know, people profess their faith in Jesus. And over the course of the year, maybe, maybe a dozen or so people say, yes, Jesus, I can see him for who he is. I'm placing my faith in him. And they get baptized, and it's, ah, oh, it's awesome. And then that pastor goes to a conference or talks to another pastor. And that pastor says, hey, you know, guess what God did this past year? 30 people proclaimed their faith in Jesus and got baptized. And the first pastor has a tendency to go, what the heck? What's he doing right that I'm doing wrong? And either he berates himself, maybe I'm not cut out for this, or he starts to find reasons to tear this guy down. I bet he's preaching this false gospel. That's why everybody's going to that church. So it, everybody struggles with this. Kids, adults, even pastors. I have struggled with sleep all my life, and since I could remember. Remember my mom putting me in for a nap when I was like a little kid, and I'd be laying there thinking it was torture, counting down the hour. But I never coveted anybody's sleep, their ability to sleep, until I got married. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I see how good of a sleeper my wife is. I get jealous. When we first got married and didn't have kids, we'd be staying up late, you know, and then on the weekends, I'd still be up at like 5 a.m. Like, why am I up at 5 a.m.? What the heck? And then she's rolling out of bed at 10 a.m. All refreshed, and I'm glaring at her like, I'm ready for a midday nap. She's like, oh, let's start our day. And I was jealous. I was jealous because it, it was awakened in me this covetousness. 
So again, it's not wrong to want something. It's not wrong to admire something. It's not wrong to be inspired uh, by others. It's not wrong for your friend to lose a bunch of weight on diet and for you to say, that is so great. You look great. I want to try that diet myself. That can be constructive. Where it becomes destructive is when you look at that friend on the diet and say, everything's so much easier for her. Everything's so much easier for her. It's not fair. I know she's my best friend, but on the inside, I can't stand it being around her sometimes with all her success. That's destructive. That's covetousness. Make sense, the distinction? All right, number two. Number two, second point. The tenth commandment deals with the internals of the heart, unlike most of the other commandments. The tenth commandment deals with the internals of the heart. Commentators have pointed out that all the others, uh, or most of the others, can be seen on the outside. When you murder somebody, steal, commit adultery, uh, those are externals. You know when you're doing it. Other people, if they're around, can witness it on the outside. Breaking the Sabbath day was even an external that you could see on the outside. The only ones that can be hidden, the ones that can be hidden in the heart from the outside world, were the first commandment and the last commandment. The first commandment we talked about last week, you shall have no other gods before me. You cannot always tell when somebody is uh, making an idol out of something that is a created being. You can't always tell that, right? We can show up to church and sing songs about God with our lips while we're obsessing about money on the inside, right? We can do that. We can have an idol on the inside of our heart while we look, you know, like a peachy Christian on the outside. And same thing with covetousness. You can't always tell when somebody is coveting on the inside, And yet, God has made it a commandment. God has made it a commandment. You can't legislate this. No government can legislate coveting. A a government can say, don't murder, don't steal. It can't legislate a heart that is free from coveting. And yet, God says, I want you free. I don't want you just free on the outside. Human governments, to an extent, can, can, can execute a civilized society, to an extent, to a degree, but they cannot free the heart on the inside. And God says to his people, I want you to be different. I want you free on the inside. And that includes being free from covetousness. Because he knows the dangers it leads to. He saw how it wrecked the world in the very beginning. I want to do a little flashback to Genesis. When God created the man and the woman and put them in the garden, everything was good. He just said, don't eat from this one tree. Oh, don't even, you have every other tree in the garden. Look at it. Look at all these trees. You can't, every other tree. There's that one tree. Don't, don't eat from that one tree. There's fruit on every tree. Don't eat from the one tree. And all of a sudden, the devil, a serpent empowered by the devil. I know some of you are like, wait, do you believe that? That's for another day. That's for another sermon. But yes, we do. Serpent empowered by the devil comes sneaking up to the woman and says, basically, did God tell you really not to eat that? And the woman engages in a conversation. And I want to pick it up in Genesis 3, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die. You're not going to truly die. For God knows, look at this, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he, he entices her with this, this whisper that you will be like God. And all of a sudden, he gets her coveting what God has. You shouldn't have to submit to God. You, you can have the autonomy that God has. You can have the wisdom that God has. All of a sudden, look what happens next. You know the story. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it and gave some to her husband who was with her 
and he ate. So the sin behind the sin was covetousness. Right? The sin was taking the fruit, and we know that, the original sin of, of disobeying God. But why did she do that? Because all of a sudden she was coveting what God had. All of a sudden she had this thought in her mind, life, as good as it is, can be better. Life should be better. I deserve life to be better. And so she grabbed the fruit and ate it. Coveting was on the inside of her heart. And since then, the world was fractured and humans were born with hearts that have a tendency to covet. It lurks in our hearts and it manifests in different ways. And it manifests in the breaking of other commandments. That's how it comes out in other sins. Uh, like here, it manifested with her taking the fruit and making a false god out of it in a sense. Because the fruit became the source, the way that she would have the wisdom, the autonomy, the glory of God that she all of a sudden coveted. The fruit is the answer. And likewise, you and I, when we covet something, we chase things and make false gods out of them, breaking the first commandment. Like some people, for example, on the outside, it looks like they're, they're making money an idol. But what they could be coveting behind the money is all kinds of things. It could be the status that comes with the money. It could be the control. It could be uh, the, the approval of their parents. It could be all kinds of things. But the money's the doorway. The money's the God that will give me these things. So they chase it. But people chase it for different reasons. A little child who maybe covets the attention of uh, other kids at school thinks, okay, the answer, the solution, the God might be my performance in sports. Or it might be uh, a certain party. If I can get to that party, if I can get on the inside there, then I'll be on the inside of this crowd moving forward. I just need to get there. My parents won't let me get there, so I'm going to break their rules to get to that party. Right? So that there's a breaking of the other commandment. Honor your father and mother. Kids disobey their parents because they're coveting something that their parents are in the way of. Right? I heard it pointed out that the, the, the commandment don't um, uh, use the Lord's name uh, in, in vain is often because of coveting. Uh, one fellow Alliance pastor, Rich Velotis, pointed out, I heard him in a sermon recently, how um, politicians will do this. They'll use the Lord's name in vain, give lip service to God in order to gain what they really covet, which is power and influence. And, you know, and, and get Christians, Catholics, to say, oh, I'm going to follow him because he's quoting scriptures. That even he's quoting them on the outside, but he's not reading the Bible in his private time. He's saying public prayers, but he's not praying privately to God. It's, it's lip service. It's using God's name in vain because he's after something that he really covets. When we have a sense of justice that's been triggered and we think, I need to have justice now, and we covet a sense of justice, it leads to stealing, murdering, and, and our attempt to balance the scales. That's one way that stealing and murdering come out. Even lying and perjury. So, so our coveting hearts on the inside manifest in all kinds of ways on the outside. Adultery is an obvious one. Look at what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 5.5. 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and then he puts in parentheses, this is Paul, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. What Paul is doing later on in Ephesians is linking the first commandment and the last one together. Those who are covetous are also an idolater. They go together. The first commandment and the last commandment were bookends. 
because the breaking of both of them on the leads to the breaking of all the ones in between. And even if you're able to say, I'm, I have the willpower not to murder, commit adultery, not to steal, even if you can have the willpower to restrain yourself in that way, your coveting heart, my coveting heart, will come out in other kinds of sinful ways. Backbiting and gossiping and quarreling with each other. The Apostle James said this in James 4. What, cause, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? You guys want to know why you're fighting and divide, divided and on social media ranting and raving about each other? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So James is saying that your coveting hearts, you wanting something that you don't have, yes, it could lead to murder on one extreme, or it just simply leads to divisiveness, fighting, quarreling, bickering, gossiping, tearing people down. You ever meet somebody who always has to talk negatively about somebody else every time you're around them? It's like they need to feel better about themselves by talking negatively about so-and-so. Likely because they're coveting something that they don't have. Basically, the bottom line is this. Coveting prevents us from loving God with all our heart and prevents us from loving others with a pure heart. It gets in the way of our... You cannot hide coveting and not expect it to not... Not expect it... Not expect it to not affect your relationship with God and others. Did I say that right? Double negative... It lurks on the inside of our hearts. Number three, at the root of all coveting is a lie about God. What we saw in the Garden of Eden, the serpent whispered to the woman, you will be like God. God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God. Your eyes will be open. That was a lie. And what he was insinuating was God is holding out on you. You could have a better life if it wasn't for God. You could have more if it wasn't for God. You could be happier if it wasn't for God. He is not being good to you right now. So take what you want. And that's a lie that we still believe. God is not good. At the root of all our coveting is some kind of lie about God. Could be that lie that God's not good. Not being good to you. So you better go and get it. Evan Carter, when he was baptized, gave testimony to this. He, he talked about how in his uh, previous life... Before Jesus, how he, he had this idea that, okay, Jesus will get me to heaven, but he's not going to lead me into a fulfilled life, so I got I to gotta do what's going to be fulfilling now in my mind, what, what I think is going to lead to a fulfilling life, the parting and such. That will get me the fulfillment now, and then when I'm old and too old to do those things, then I'll come back to Jesus. Right? He gave testimony to the fact that that was a lie he was believing until Jesus showed him the truth. And it's a lie we still believe in many ways. God is not giving me this because he's not being good to me. Another lie is that God is not in control. In other words, God might be good. He might have a good plan for me. But he's not strong enough to give it to me because other people keep messing it up. Other people, if it wasn't for other people, I would get such great things from God, but God's just not strong enough to overpower the sins, the misdeeds, the mistakes of other people. So I got to go help God out a little bit. Right? I got to go get what's mine because poor God is just isn't strong enough to give it to me. 
I got to get it in my own strength. So maybe you know, in a marriage, you're praying that your wife or husband change and they're transformed, and you're thinking God wants to give this good gift to me, but they're just too darn stubborn. So God, I'm going to help you out by doing a little manipulating and threatening over here. Right? That ever play out? Well, I, my boss was supposed to give me that raise, give me the promotion that this other guy got, but poor God. He got, his plan got diverted by my boss's foolishness, so now I got to go take matters into my own hands and really stick it to my boss. Plays out in all kinds of ways. Another lie, and this is not an exhaustive list of lies, but another lie we tend to believe is that God owes me. God owes me because I've been going to church, I've been praying, I've been reading my Bible, I've been doing the good stuff. So why didn't God let my prayer get answered? Why didn't God give me this? Why didn't God give me that? It's the prosperity gospel that we believe, even if we criticize the people who preach about it on TV. Oh, yeah, we Christians love to criticize the, the people who we see on TV. Oh, those guys on TV telling you to send in your money, and then God's going to multiply it tenfold. Don't, don't believe that stuff. Meanwhile, if we don't get the promotion we want, or we miss out on the, the bid that we, you know, the bid on the house, or our engagement breaks off, we raise our fist at God and go, life's not fair. Showing that we believe the same prosperity gospel that they're preaching on TV. That God owes me if I do the right things. Revealing that on some level we all believe that our faith in Jesus means Jesus should give me what I really covet. Jesus, I put my faith in you so I want you to give me what I really want. Which really isn't you. Something else. Right? Now let me pause for a moment. Let me pause for a moment and ask you to just reflect. Before we continue, can you identify some things perhaps lately that have snuck into your heart that you've been coveting? I'm not asking you to raise your hand. Just, 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 just think. See if God shows you. What is it? Is it the praise of people? Is it control over a certain situation? Is it what somebody has? Their belongings, their stuff, their car, their jobs, their talents? Is it the kind of relationship? Is it a family? You wish you had somebody else's family. Maybe your adult children are not as successful as somebody else's adult children and you covet the kind of relationship and success another family has. What is it? And what are the symptoms? What has it led to? Has it led to you breaking the law? Cheating on your taxes? Trying to take what's yours by breaking laws that you don't think should apply to you? Has it led to interpersonal dysfunction? Bitterness and jealousies? Anxieties?
burning yourself out trying to please people? And lastly, what is the lie underneath it? What's the lie underneath it that you've been believing and buying into? Is it that God's not good? Is it that he owes you? Is it that he's not in control? Raise your hand if you've been able to identify something. I'm not going to pass the mic around. Okay, okay. Finding freedom from covetousness could be a sermon series in itself. And as I was praying about what to kind of zero in on, once we can identify that it is a struggle for all of us, once we can identify specific ways that it plays out in our lives, um, it just landed on two things. So two more points. Freedom from covetousness comes by remembering God's promises. That's first. When God gave them the law, again, he started off by saying, I am the Lord your God who rescued you, freed you from bondage, reminded them of what he did, and he also said, I'm leading you into the promised land. I've got you. I've got you. Now, the promised land was only a foreshadow of the ultimate promised land that you and I get as believers in Jesus. When we trust in him, we get an ultimate promised land. I want to uh, flip over to Romans 5 where we're going to, make our last two points from. In Romans 5, starting in verse 3, it says, Therefore, since we have been made right... Actually, that should be verse 1. I'm sorry. Since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Verse 2, Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Imagine you won the lottery. Three million dollars, let's say. You just got to go to the bank. Cash. What, they've been, what they gave you. But you have to take a city bus there because you don't own a car. And imagine while you're on a city bus... You're taking that bus, you're looking out the window at everybody driving their own car, and you're jealous of the fact that they have these cars. It's not fair that I have to take a city bus. While you're on your way to cash your winning lottery ticket, where you can buy multiple cars with, right? That's what you and I do when we covet things in this life, knowing, or when we should know and remember what we have because of our faith in Jesus peace with God, a place of undeserved privilege, and a confident sharing of God's glory and inheritance 
in the future. We get to look forward to that with confidence because of Jesus, not because of what we've done. We don't have to uh, earn our way into God's kingdom by following the commandments. We get it because Jesus has accomplished it for us. He was perfectly obedient in our place, and then he died the death that we deserved And then he rose again and conquered the grave. And so you and I get this promise. And in a few minutes, we're going to receive communion together. And communion is us remembering you stand in a place of undeserved privilege. Jesus said, when you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Remembering what? That he paid for us. That he accomplished it. This is the new covenant that we're under now. Where he fulfilled the law in our place. And now we get the inheritance that he deserves. Can you imagine that? Us getting the inheritance that Jesus deserves. Us getting the inheritance. Jesus earned it. We get it. Jesus earned it. We get it. And we get pieces of it now, and we get the fullness of it when he returns. And meanwhile, we look at each other for these brief moments in time and go, I want what she has. I want what he has. I want that. I want that. Then I'll really be happy. Oh, but if we would just remember God's promises. I got you. I got something great for you. Hang on. You won the lottery. Don't look out the city bus window complaining you don't have a car right now. It's a short trip to the bank. Right? As we receive communion in a few moments, Jesus said, or or the Apostle Paul said later, he said, uh, When you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death, which happened in the past, until he comes again, future. His death secured for us the promise of our future hope. You are proclaiming that no matter what happens, when I leave here, I'm still adopted in God's family. I'm still justified in God's sight. He looks at me and sees me as righteous because of Jesus, even when I'm screwing up three days from now. That's good news, is it not? Should that not free us from coveting what somebody else has? My kids fight over and quarrel over the TV remote. And we fight and quarrel over silly things because we forget God's promises. So when we receive communion, let us remember. If you've trusted in Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus, remember. Ah, his promise is for me. And then lastly... Number five, freedom from covetousness comes through having God's presence. So his promise, but also his presence. Now I'm going to finish off that text in Romans. This is verse three. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, which we do face. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know, let me just stop there for a moment. When we place our hope in other things, in getting that house, being single again, being married again, or being married, whatever it is, whatever we put our hope in, it always disappoints us when we put too much hope into it, right? We say, no, no, this hope will not lead to disappointment. It's not just a promise. Look what it says next. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. So we've got the promise of the future that we can cling to, but we've also got his spirit in our hearts filling us with this confidence that he loves us. It's hard for us to remember the promises without the spirit of God filling us with the tangible 
confidence that, oh yeah, that's right, God loves me, God's got me, God's got me. And the good news is that if you've trusted in Jesus, you get this spirit in you when you trusted in him. But as we receive communion, I'm going to encourage you to ask him to fill you with a fresh confidence that he loves you. He fills our hearts with the love of God. He fills our hearts with this tangible reminder that I'm his adopted child. That's right. I've been justified. That's right. That's right. Even though I had a, man, I had a bad day yesterday. All kinds of negative things were coming out of me. But he loves me still. I'm still his child. I've screwed up in the past. I've made some major mistakes. But he loves me still. That's what we're remembering when we receive the cup and the cracker. And that's also what we get to experience when we ask him, fill me afresh with a confidence in your love. But I would be remiss if I didn't just say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've never trusted in him, you don't get this. You don't get his promise. You don't get to share in his inheritance. And you don't get his spirit in you. That doesn't mean God doesn't love you. He loves you. Just like I love every kid that's in this church. But only my kids are going to get to share in my inheritance. Only my kids get the protection of me and Jess living in my house, being in my family. And if we were to adopt one of those kids, they'd get to share in the same thing. But while they're on the outside of our family, they can't experience the love like my kids can experience it. And only when we trust in Jesus, only when we hand in our report card that we think is so great, full of D's, F's, and C's, and say, Jesus, I'm going to take yours. I'm going to stop clinging to mine. And I'm going to take yours. Because I know I need straight A's to get into this kingdom, to get into this family. And Jesus is like, here, take mine. Just let go of yours. And so many of us are like, no. No, I don't want to admit that my report card isn't good enough. But then we don't have the hope filling our hearts with his love. It leaves us wondering, is this bad thing happening? Because God, maybe I screwed up. It leaves us playing mind games. So I would urge you, if you've never trusted in Jesus, even if you've been going to church your whole life, make today a day where you say, I'm in. I'm handing in my report card. I'm trusting that Jesus did it all for me. And then join us. Our way of publicly declaring this is through baptism. We've got one coming up on September 5th. Join us. Come talk to me after service and say, I made a decision today to follow Jesus, trust in him, lay my report card down. I'll pray with you. And then you get you signed up for that baptism. So let's stand. Band, come on up here. Before we receive communion, we're just going to sing a little bit. Let, let, the, let the Holy Spirit fill us, talk to us, move us, change us, challenge us, encourage us. Then we'll receive the communion together. If you don't have it, this gives you time to just put your hand up and the ushers will put one in your hand. So go ahead and put your hand up if you don't have the elements of communion. And the band will lead us for a moment.